we're in John 12 this morning. And this kind of begins an interesting time through the scriptures. Because if you looked at Matthew 12 or, or one of the other books, you know, Luke 12, they're still talking about the first year of God's ministry and Jesus' ministry, okay? But John, man, he, he brings us, we're in, we're in the last year of Christ. In fact, starting here, we're in the last week of Christ's earthly ministry before he is crucified on the cross, Jesus, uh, Jesus is going to give us about eight powerful teachings that John observes and writes down about. And, and he really starts to focus on the words and the person of Christ. Some of the most significant words from Christ are written right here. And, uh, uh, you know, are spoken really in the last week of his life. We call this Passion Week, and we're going to spend, uh, you know, most churches go over this at Easter, and we mention it at Easter, and we talk about it at Easter, but we're going to, you know, we go through the scriptures verse by verse, so we cover it when we get to them, and that's where we're at today. And the picture we get in chapter 12 is that Jerusalem is packed beyond belief. I mean, they're, they're at capacity, way beyond capacity in a sense. As the Jews are gathering for Passover, it was a... I don't want to say a rite of passage, but it was kind of the, the unwritten law that if you could get to Jerusalem for Passover, you needed to. And you needed to multiple times in your life. In fact, over 2 million Jews would come from all over the world, and they would actually charter boats at this part of the year to come from Alexandria, Egypt, and to come from, from the you know, Italy area, and all, all different parts of the, of the world would would, would come over and be there to celebrate Passover together in Jerusalem. Now, at the same time, Jesus has been fighting with the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and the council, the Jewish council, has decided to arrest Jesus at this point. And they're after him, especially at this time. They don't want him to disrupt anything else any longer. And Jesus has been waiting for the perfect time that he and his father have worked out, and now's the time. So in chapter 12, he comes down to Bethany, and you know, last week we talked about him raising Lazarus from the dead, and he comes back, uh, back two miles, it's about two miles from Jerusalem over the hill, so you you have um, the, the Temple Mount, and then you have the Kidron Valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives, and that faces the temple, and you could look out the gates and see the Mount of Olives, and then you go back up the Mount of Olives and back down to Bethany, okay? So that is where Bethany is. It's on the other side of that mountain, just about two miles away. It's a very familiar place to him. It's a very, it's a wonderful place for him. This is where he's, you know, healed Simon the leopard. This is where, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And, but, but at this point, you can feel the tension that is happening. And if you read the scriptures that David wrote, it says, he prepares a meal for me in the presence of my enemies. This is Jesus eating the meal, and his enemies are two miles away plotting to arrest him, which is going to lead to his crucifixion. So John, he watched Martha serve. And I'm sure this was the, the best prepared and the tastiest meal that she had ever done. Now, why do I say that? Well, last week we, we talked about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Her brother was dead. 
We get the feeling that she enjoyed cooking and taking care of people. That was her, her, her kind of love language in a sense. The mill is at Simon the leper's house, and uh, so she could have said, well, let someone else serve you. I'm just going to, you know, this isn't my house. I don't need to take care of anything. But, but she, was, she was ready for this. So the house was filled with these great smelling, uh, you know, great smells of this great meal that she was cooking, and, and you get that she was very comfortable in serving. Where her sister Mary was very comfortable what? Sitting at Jesus' feet. And we've talked about that before. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Martha's gift was taking care of people, and she was best at when she was serving. You know, had, have you had enough? Let me get you some more. Do you need anything else? Okay, who needs dessert? You know, it's that person that just wants to serve people. At one point in her life, Martha was about serving. And she thought that other people ought to be about serving also, Right? As in the, the conflict between her and Mary, and she went to, to the Lord and said, hey, why isn't she doing what I'm doing? And, and the Lord says, she has she is, um, she is decided on, on the better. And what he meant was, you know, Jesus is only here for so long, and Mary wanted to gather everything, every bit of information, teaching and all that, she wanted to set at the feet. But now she's matured in her faith. She isn't worried about Martha, I mean Mary. She's just serving She's a worker bee that we all love. We had multiple worker bees this last week, and it was great. I mean, thank God for, for the Marthas in this world, in this church, right? They get the job done. Everyone else is just sitting, worshiping Jesus. But the mature gifting is what is great here. Because that gifting can be irritating early on. Why isn't everybody else doing what I'm doing, Right? Why isn't everybody else serving what I, how I serve? If we had all servants that did, did the one thing, would everything else get accomplished? No. You see what I'm saying? We've got to spread the love in a sense, spread how we serve and all those things. But when the gifting matures, it's a beautiful thing because it becomes an act of worship. It's like a sweet fragrance to the Lord, and it's pleasing to Him. Jesus was glad to be back at Bethany. He'd been out in the desert as, as they were coming, you know, eating wilderness campfire food. And as much as we love to go camping, we love to come home at the same time, don't we? Any campers out there, you understand what I'm saying? Verse 3, it says, I didn't pull this up, so if you put up the first slide, I'll get my thing going here. But verse 3, it says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, it's an alabaster jar that many of them would hang over the neck and they would break the top of it off. And it's very expensive um, perfume in a sense. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Well, if you're looking closely, you will see how John gives us two word pictures right here. Two sisters that love the Lord, and they're doing things very differently. And through their maturity, they've learned how to love the Lord. Martha is, Martha is filling the house with, with wonderful cooking smells. When you walk into somebody's house, and when somebody knows how to cook, you, you walk in, you go, oh, this is going to be a good night. You know, you just enjoy it. You know. But Mary, Mary's filling the house with a beautiful perfume smell, and they're not really competing with each other here. You know, and, and doing, you know, during this evening, 
She picked up on something. She took this, you know, this expensive perfume, broke it open, and pours it on his feet and worships him. And this is the beautiful thing about Mary. She didn't go, hey guys, I got the perfume right here, okay? And I'm going to break it open, and I'm going to walk over, and I'm going to pour it on Jesus' feet. That's what seven-year-olds do, right? Hey, Dad, look at me. Look at me. No, I'm going to jump, Dad. I'm going to jump. Okay, right here, right here. I'm going to jump. But Mary, she doesn't act like that. She doesn't go, do you know how much this costs, guys? She seems to not notice and not care about the other people. The house is, is filling with this sweet fragrance, and the women around instantly notice the smell. Now, what are the guys doing? <coughs> it's like a junior high um, seventh grade dance, you know? The guys are all coughing, but then there's one guy there named Judas. Verse four, it says, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was a, you know, it's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he says, this, guys, is a waste. This is not how I would handle things. This is not good stewardship. Good thing that I'm in charge of the money, right? This would have never happened. <laughs> he would have taken his cut if she would have given it to him. He was like, we could have done great things for God. I don't understand something here. Why did Jesus put Judas in charge of the money? There's 11 other guys, right? I mean, Matthew, he's a former tax collector. They called them publicans, okay, at the time. And he was good with money. But he was saving Matthew from all of that. Judas couldn't be saved. He probably wanted the job. He saw a future in it. And Jesus allowed him to. And it's something I don't understand. It's amazing to me how sometimes the Lord will allow this to happen. We step back and we go, but, but Lord, that person? In that role? Jesus, come here. I need to draw your attention to this. <laughs> you appointed Judas? I know you created the world and all that, but, but here, let me give you a piece of advice. That's the wrong guy. And the Lord is like, eh, it's just money. But Judas here, he couldn't stand it, and he judges the situation. In reality, he just can't stand it. So much money was out of his control. You see, according to his opinion, Mary had just wasted about a year's worth of pay for a common person. Two things are happening here. One, he views it as a waste. And I think, secondly, he views that Jesus is not worth the about 300 denarii that it cost for this. So depending on where you're you know, stationed in life, uh, Jesus isn't worth the 30000 or 50000 or 70000 or $100,000 that you may receive in a salary. Interesting, huh? What did he price Jesus as? About 30 pieces of silver, right? 30 coins? 
But Mary, she doesn't even respond. She's caught up in worship. And Christ says to her, leave her alone. Leave her alone. You know what? If God is calling you to worship and to do something, don't defend yourself. Just do it. Just worship. Just go for it. Let Jesus tell them to leave you alone. One of the reasons why so many people feel so far away from God is because we haven't been sitting at his feet lately. I wish there was something like a pill that we could take. Just slip it into your morning coffee or morning Diet Coke or whatever, you, you know. You don't even realize you're taking it. But really, there's no substitute for sitting at Jesus' feet. There's no other way to connect with God but through Jesus. The fascinating thing is that somehow Mary is tuned in to Jesus. Everyone's having a great time. Martha, these, these hors d'oeuvres are just wonderful. You've, done out, you've outdone yourself. Can I get the recipe? How did you cook these? You can imagine different conversations going on in the house. But Mary would have picked up something about Jesus. This is the last week. And she's thinking, well, well, something's different. What is it, Lord? They're beginning a Passion Week. And she's picking up on it. And she takes a quick breath. I can imagine she's like, <gasps> and she just takes the jar and breaks it over and anoints his feet. Leave her alone, Jesus says. She has done this, or she did this to prepare for my burial. Well, that'll bring a party to a halt pretty quick, won't it? Could imagine the disciples kind of going, you know, kind of in the background because they don't want to say it out loud. They're just looking at each other. He keeps talking about dying. We need to get him into some counseling, right? And with any normal person, that would be right. In fact, I mean, it's, uh, speaking of counseling, uh, that we have a new suicide hotline. Did you know about that? And, you know, 911 is regular, you know, for emergency. 988 is a new suicide hotline. That's a great thing for society. But at this point, Jesus is not normal in that sense. He is God. It says here, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Mary's heart is in tune with Jesus. Now, have you ever seen a tuning fork? You know what I'm talking about? It's that long kind of fork and has two uh, things on it and you just hit it and it makes a certain sound. And I'm not going to try to do a sound because you would all be like, stop, that's not in tune. But, but you know, to, to tune a piano, they take the C, Okay, and they have a whole bunch of different instruments to tune a piano, but, but take the, the, you know, the, the, the fork for the perfect C. Now, do they hit C on the piano and go ding or whatever it is and, and then hit, the, hit the, the tuner? And if it doesn't match up, you take a hatchet to the tuner and, and kind of hack it off to make it match the piano? Is that how it's done? No. It's the opposite, Right. We, tu we hit the, the tuner, and then you tune the key to the tuner. And you know, there's special ways to do all that. How did Mary get in tune with Jesus? She did it by setting at his feet. 
She changed to match Jesus. She didn't change Jesus to match her. And this particular Mary, because there's others, and don't get them mixed up, but this Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. She was always there. And it's quite interesting for the other disciples because other rabbis would have never allowed this, okay? And again, this is not me. This is the times, okay? Not in the first century. No way a woman would be allowed to sit in front of a man or before a man and learn. And Jesus came to release women. He allows them to sit at his feet just as the men and be taught. She, you know, to be shown respect, to say, you can learn, you can learn about me, you can learn about God. Jesus is showing respect to Mary and other women by allowing them to sit at his feet. This is a wonderful picture. And then when someone questions her actions, what does he say? Leave her alone. She, she's getting it. I wish you would start getting it. Just leave her alone. So I have to ask the question. How hard could it be to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn? How hard is it? <laughs> I would say it's pretty hard. How many of you would say you were distracted at one point this week? Yeah, every single one of us, right? We get so easily distracted. Around my house, I think my wife's memory and my memory is just gone. Why? Because we have kids. And every time we start thinking about one thing, oh, I need to go do this, one of the kids interrupts us, right? Not wrong. I mean, they're not doing it in a wrong way or anything. They're just, you know. Or I'll interrupt Lisa, and that'll get her train of thought on something else. You know what I'm saying? We all get distracted. It is so hard to sit at the feet of Jesus. There's always something to do. There's always a project, always, a, you know, or a guilt trip. I mean, you, we keep thinking, well, as soon as I get done with this list, I am done. And it'll take me about six months, and I'll go on a two-week vacation. And on that vacation, I will do a whole bunch of stuff to fill my time that I've already got planned out. And I will wear myself out. And when I get back, I will need a vacation from my vacation, right? But instead, what do we do? We start making another list. That's just how we are. And the Lord says, how about you just sit at my feet? How about you accomplish nothing for the next 45 minutes and commune with me through the word? About who I am. About what I'm feeling. About the heart of who I am. And what I'm trying to show you about God. This is about the heart of worship. Where it is all about Jesus. Because Jesus leads us to the Father. In the scriptures it says... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So we go before him and then he directs our path. See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. And I think we've all figured that out, haven't we? Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
So Jesus says to Martha and Luke, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better. This is what happened earlier where Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. For she matured, and it will not be taken away from her. I've got a question for you. What do you think heaven's going to be like? Do you think it's going to be full of projects and iPhones and to-do lists and commuting? No, that's hell, okay? Mary is going to be very comfortable in heaven. For some of us, I think it'll take about a thousand years for us to get used to being relaxed a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Because we're so wound up. But you, if you get a taste of heaven, you just sit still with it. You give up the hurt. You give up the pain. You give up the, the negative things. So I asked the Lord, am I Martha or am I Mary? And he starts laughing at me. You know, I think in all of us, there's a little bit of both. And one wins out at different times, right? That's okay. But we should always come back to the feet of Jesus. Verse 9, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I mean, poor Lazarus. I mean, he's already died. They put, wrapped him up. They put him into the tomb for four stinking days. And it was stinking by that time, I'm sure. Jesus, is raise, you know, Jesus raises him from the dead. So now they've decided to kill him. Like he asked for it, right? I mean, he was in, in what they call Abraham's bosom, probably talking to Elijah, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And he gets called back. And now there's a price on his head. Why? Because people don't like him because of all the stuff that God has done in his life. Man, that's why I would like people not to like me. You know what I'm saying? I would like them so irritated with me about what God has done in my life compared to so irritated with me because of my personality. You see the difference? He can't keep quiet about what God has done for him. What is he supposed to do? Are you the guy that Jesus raised from the dead? Yes, but I don't want to offend anybody, so don't tell anybody. No, he's going to be out there telling everybody, right? Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, it's pretty obvious as Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives, um, there was a tradition of waving 
palm branches. They would take their palm branches at certain times during certain ceremony, especially at this time, they'd pull up the palm branches and everybody would be shaking them and waving them. And everybody, you know, who grew up Jewish from little kids, they were taught how to do this and when to do this and, and so forth. So they all had their palm branches. It was a symbol of Jew, Jewish kind of national sovereignty and it become a huge thing. It all started during the revolt of the Maccabees against the, you know, the, the conquering invaders. And, and Israel actually took back their temple at that point, And they came to the temple waving palm branches. Uh, so from that point on, it became a big deal. So what they're saying to Jesus is, you represent our national sovereignty. They want him to do what? Get in there, take over. And everybody's going to follow us. They're saying, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the king of Israel. You are the king of Israel, not Caesar. Not Caesar, not Rome. You. In other scriptures, people were telling Jesus, man, tell these guys to shut up. You're going to get, they're going to come down on us. Rome is going to come in and take over. You know, you got to get them to, <coughs> get them to be quiet. And what does he say? If they don't cry out, the rocks will. That is who I am. Now they're expecting Jesus to be the Daniel 7 or Daniel 9 type of Messiah. But that's not yet. That's the second coming when he comes back on the big white horse. And he, you know, he's the conquering uh, Jesus at that point. This time he's conquering Jesus, but he's doing it in a humble way. He's coming in on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey. Now, a colt is really small. So even if Jesus is more than five foot five, which I would assume he would be taller than that, his feet would be dragging on the ground. This is kind of humorous, isn't it? Almost silly looking. Now, I'm not a huge man. I'm not a huge, okay, everybody shake their head yes. You understand. But, you know, we went to, on a trip to Hawaii once and my brother was like, we want to ride horses. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll call up a place and we'll go out and ride some horses and my wife with, with, with us and a couple of friends and we get out there and they put me on the smallest stinking horse there was. I looked like this huge giant man on this little bitty horse. I couldn't imagine trying to do a donkey where my feet were dragging. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is looking pretty silly right now. And, you know, and, <laughs> why would Jesus do this? Well, he's fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah had written 500 years earlier that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a colt of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, the king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl or foal of a donkey. So everybody in Jerusalem would say, hey, do you think Jesus, I mean, he kind of met this requirement. Do you think he could be the Messiah? I mean, he's claiming to be the Messiah. There's a lot of people around going, I'm not really sure if he is or not. And they would ask, well, how did he enter, enter into the, the gate of the city? Did he walk? No. Did he come in on a, on a big white horse like a general? No. Did the men carry him in? No. He came in on a donkey. And they'd be like, well, hey, you know the scripture. You know what Zechariah said? Maybe, maybe he is. 
he might well be the Messiah. The Old Testament has over 300 types of prophecies that came true concerning the Messiah. 300 specific things, not three, not 30, but 300. And there's one person who fulfills all of them. What are the odds of a prediction from 500 years earlier and Jesus coming to fulfill that? Pretty big odds, right? Now, what about the scriptures that were written 1,000 years earlier or 2,000 years earlier? 300 prophecies are being met, all except for the end time things that he'll, that he'll finish when he returns. Now, when you make a calculation on odds, there's a thing called the law of compounding probability. You've all studied this, right? Okay, I haven't really either, but I know enough about it. It makes sense once it's explained. The law of compounding probability means that the more probability I place or compound onto a prediction, the least likely it is to happen. So, if I say, there's going to be an earthquake today in the world, that's a pretty good prediction, right? I mean, there's hundreds of earthquakes every day, right? All around the world. Okay, I'd be 100% correct. But if I say, well, there's going to be an earthquake in California. I've compounded it, okay? But we can all say that's pretty much going to happen because there's earthquakes all over California. I'd still be right. Now, if I said in San Francisco, right? I mean, there's earthquakes there every day. This year, okay, I get that. But what if I said an 8.3 magnitude earthquake? You'd be like, uh, on July 18th at 4.22 a.m. on the Hayward Fault Line. You see, every time I add more specifics to it, it compounds it and makes it less likely it's supposed to come true. Now, what if I added another 293 different predictions to this? What would the odds be of that? Well, they're astronomical. There's not a man in human history who fulfilled even 30 of these before Jesus Christ, and he fulfills all 300. There was a guy named Peter, Peter Stoner who wrote a book, and he said, let's see what the probability would be for a guy who met not 300, but just 30, oh wait, not 30, just eight of these prophecies. And these are the ones he picked that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, proceeded with a messenger like Elijah, has to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed by a friend for exactly 30 pieces of silver. The silver would be thrown down and used to buy a potter's field. The Messiah has to be falsely accused, but he will stand silent, and then they're going to crucify him. Eight different things. Eight different prophecies from the Old Testament Scripture. Now, what do you think the probability of one man fulfilling that mathematically would be? It's 1 times 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros. So the author said rightly, you probably don't get the idea of 1 times 10 to the 17th power. So let me illustrate this. Let's build a wall around Texas. Now, some people would be happy with that, but I'm from Texas, you know. 
Then let's take one times 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and pick one of those out and put an X on it. Now mix them all up, dump them out into Texas. Now, I don't think you get an idea of how big Texas is. I can drive from here to El Paso, okay? It's more miles from El Paso all the way across Texas to Houston, okay? That's how big Texas is. It would be two foot deep all over Texas in silver dollars if we did this. Now, pick out a friend to dive out of an airplane. It's got to be a crazy friend, somebody like Tyler. And wherever he lands in Texas, he has to close his eyes, reach down, and pick up one silver dollar. Now, the chances of him picking up the silver dollar with the X that we put on one of them is the same as one guy fulfilling those eight prophecies. See my point? 300 of them. This is why it takes faith to believe in Jesus. He can not only fulfill those eight, but he can fulfill all three of them. And this is what faith really is. Can he save me? It's very logical if you look at it. He can fulfill all three, 300 of them. Then this is the guy. Now go back to the point where I was coming over the Mount of Olives, where he's coming over the Mount of Olives. Everybody's waving the palm branches and, and, and celebrating. And Jesus is riding on this colt, and he's crying. You would imagine he would be happy. The people will recognize him, uh, him for, at this point. But he's just crying, and the disciples are confused. Every time they're partying, Jesus is crying. And every time they're crying, Jesus is partying. And they can't figure him out. They can't get on the same page sometimes. And those who were close to him heard him say, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed for you if you had known this, day, this was the day of your salvation. In other words, if you had known that the Lord was entering into your city. But they didn't. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah. But there's something beyond that. The actual day was predicted by Daniel hundreds of years earlier. The actual day. And Daniel 9, the first year of Xerxes' uh, of Xerxes' son, um, the reign, his reign, Daniel said this, After I die, we will come out of captivity, and there will be a ruler who will let us go back and build the temple. And this was Cyrus, okay, and all that kind of stuff. And that day he sends them back to rebuild the temple. That day starts a clock ticking and there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens and it's I know it sounds odd and we've gone over it before but stick with me so there's a total of 69 sevens for a total of 483 somethings and at the end of those 483 somethings the messiah will appear and sure enough Artaxerxes who reigned after Daniel's death let the people build their temple and he appointed Nehemiah to do it and, all, and that day was March 14th 445 BC and that started the clock ticking. So on that day 483 somethings and we figured out the 483 are Babylonian years which is 360 days okay. So if you're a genius or you have a calculator 
you would find out that 483 times 360 is 173,880 days. So if you start on March 14th, 445 BC, and you put that together, it comes out to be March 6th, AD 32. We think that's the day that Jesus entered into the temple, uh, entered, entered into Jerusalem. Jesus stands on the top of the Mount of Olives. Now, there could be a little, you know, little room to move there just because of the way calendars are, but that's when they think it is. And when you wake up on this day, it said to expect the Messiah to reveal himself. And because they were hard-hearted and they didn't, ex- they didn't seek the Lord, they were not expecting him that day, and he was crying about it. He was weeping about it. Now, I know that, that you know, 2020 is hindsight. I get that. But 300 prophecies and they can't see that it's Jesus. I mean, this is just as bad as us today, isn't it? With all the biblical knowledge, all the different Bibles, or maybe even different translations that we have in our house, and we can't figure out whether to follow Jesus or not. That's pretty sad in this world. I guarantee you there's many people that are not at church today, that have Bibles in their house, that profess to be Christians, that are not attending And they're not recognizing Jesus. Verse 16, it says, At first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. This is why it's so important for us to know the word of God. So we can expect Jesus when he comes, right? The Bible says that Jesus is coming back. So we're either going to die and go be with him in glory first, or we're waiting for him to return if we're not dead yet, right? We should be expecting it. He's going to put his foot down on the Mount of Olives. And what is fascinating is the fact that, that, again, the world will not be expecting him, just like on that day when he entered Jerusalem. Even though the scriptures say that Jesus is coming back, even though the Bible prophecy will be fulfilled, and many of these things haven't happened yet, Jesus could come back at any time. And even the church will be caught unawares. We're going to be surprised, it says, when we are raptured. It is the one thing, it's it's really one thing to believe in your head. It's another thing to know that the Lord will be there in a twinkling of an eye and it be done. So are we expecting that day? Are we prepared for that day? Are you prepared when you go, you know, when you die in this world to go meet your maker? Are you prepared for that day when he comes back? The rapture. Are you his friend? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been about your father's business. Your name is written in the book of life. Or will he say, I don't know who you are. That would be so sad. So let's not be foolish. Let's be ready for his return. I'm looking forward to it. Are you? Yeah. Some days I can't wait for it to come. Couldn't imagine what heaven's going to be like. But at the same time, I want to live my life here. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a weird, but we're not of this world, are we? No, we're of the next world. We're of the next kingdom. Well, let's pray as Tyler and the worship team comes back up here.
And Pam, if you're going to come down for prayer, if anybody would like prayer, we'll be down here. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you, you were the one who can can fulfill all the prophecies. Everything that was written uh, about you, you fulfilled. I thank you for being willing. I thank you for loving us so much that you said, Father, I will do what you want me to do for your glory. And it really is about the Father's glory. Everything that happens in our life can be used for your glory, Lord. And I pray that you help us see that and understand that. Lord, I pray that that you help us be prepared. Prepared for when we go be with you or when you come down here and rapture us. That we are down here doing your business and not our own. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you watch for him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.